This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you. Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy, Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD. And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. Hey, Dr. T. Hey, Miss Truth. We're here today to welcome a, a human that I'm deeply intrigued by and so excited, um, so excited uh, that Cami Barton is here with us today. We met in Amsterdam this summer, and I just have a really fond memory of a really deep conversation we got into uh, in Amsterdam by the river. It was one of those kind of conversations that just enliven me so much. I get so excited when we get to that depth so quickly. So I just was so excited to know that Cami could join us today from a Northern European country. But uh, before we introduce Cami, I'd like to um, read a poem on, on pain. And it's actually called On Pain. And it's by Khalil Gibran. And there's a line in here that really intrigues me. And I'm just wondering, you know, what Dr. T, you're going to think about this if, if you're going to hear that line. And I'm also really intrigued by what Cammie's going to pluck out of this poem, just kind of a way to get our conversation going. Uh, you know, after I read this poem, I'd really love to, Dr. T, if you could just introduce Cammie Barton to us. But I'll just start with this poem on pain, um, considering the events right now in the world. There's a war between Israel and Hamas and what's happening down in Gaza. It's uh, heartbreaking and Ukraine is still going on and so many other situations in the world. And I often think to myself, it's like, as we're embarking on this world of psychedelic therapy, like what is really happening in the world? They, these two things cannot be separate. So I just wanted to read this poem on pain as we're dealing with it on a large scale in the world today. And a woman spoke saying, tell us of pain. And he said, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life. Your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart, even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields. And you would watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. Much of your pain is self-chosen 
It is the bitter potion by which the physician within you heals your sick self. Therefore, trust the physician and drink his remedy in silence and tranquility. For his hand, though heavy and hard, is guided by the tender hand of the unseen. And the cup he brings, though it burn your lips, has been fashioned of the clay which the potter has moistened with his own sacred tears. And so I'm just going to let that kind of sit there and welcome Cammie Barton and Dr. T. Would you like to take take it over to celebrate our friend Cammie Barton? Sure. Thank you for your poem. It reminds me of a um, an artist, actually, a medicine singer, Nick Barber, who writes a song all about the similar kind of theme of p- our pain and our joy being um, equally wondrous when viewed from a certain kind of perspective. But anyway, um, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Punk Therapy. Today we are joined by Kami Sapara Barton, who is an author and embodiment practitioner dedicated to creating networks of care and livable futures. They work across the realms of embodied social justice, grief, pleasure, and drug policy. Rooted in black feminism, ecology, and harm reduction, Kami uses creativity alongside embodied practices to create cultural change in fields ranging from psychedelic assisted therapy to arts education. From 2021 to 2023, Kami designed and directed Ecologies of Transformation, a temporary master's program in researching how art making and embodiment can create social change. In recent years, Kami has taught within various programs for psychedelic therapists in training, including Psychedelic Coalition for Health, Synthesis and the California Institute of Integral Studies, to name a few. Since 2017, they have worked closely with MAPS, ensuring that MDMA psychotherapy will be accessible to BIPOC and other communities disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Cami's debut book is titled Tending Grief, Embodied Rituals for Holding Our Sorrow and Growing Cultures of Care in Community and will be published with North Atlantic Books in April 2024. And it's actually available now for pre-order. So welcome, Cami. Lovely to meet you. You know, you're you actually someone I would have loved to interview for my PhD. Um, but bef- by the time I came across you and your work, I had already completed my data collection. So I'm thrilled that I get the opportunity to make up for that uh, with this conversation now. It's great to to be here with you all. Thanks for having me. Cami, I I have a place that I thought I just wanted to, there's so much here to dialogue about, but I wanted to know if this, the the title of your book, Tending Grief, Embodied Rituals for Holding Our Sorrow and Growing Cultures of Care and Community. My my story is always that there's a personal reason that people write books, that there's a personal event. I'm wondering if there's something personal that sparked this book for you, the writing of this book. Yeah, there are definitely many personal threads that that underpin my interest in in grief. Um, Not only grief that I've experienced, but the grief that I see in my family and in the sort of patterns within communities I'm connected to. 
but yeah, I think the initial spark of the the project really came from an experience around abortion. Um, so I had an abortion in 2017. Um, and yeah, although it was a choice that I felt aligned with, I was suddenly just flooded or submerged in grief and found very few spaces to talk about it, to just be able to show up and be a grieving person. <laughs> um, and I felt a lot of uh, anger and frustration about this and um, a deep desire to not just bypass it or hide in a corner on my own with it, but find ways to integrate it into my life and to move through it in a way that felt generative to me. So that really was the spark that kind of allowed me to start researching different rituals that I could use in my in my healing process. Um, but then in the midst of of that, there were there were other things that surfaced like childhood trauma um, related to yeah, years of sexual abuse, which had been previously dissociated up to that point, which then kind of surfaced during that that time of recovery. Um, so it became a little bit of a grief, maybe a grief tsunami. There were there were other things in that time as well, the the, the last six or seven year period, including losing my house to a home to a house fire, having my partner's father die of terminal cancer very quickly. Um, just a lot of things. Uh, so I, yeah, was acutely aware of the need in my own life, but also in the world in general, or rather the West, the Western places where I've lived, um, to reconnect um, to grief tending pro processes, because I think the amount of isolation um, that many of us experience when, when in that state isn't fair, and it doesn't need to be that way. Um, there are many other cultural approaches to tending grief in a communal context, and that's sort of what I wanted to point towards or create some some pathways back in that direction. And I'm just curious, what what cultures did you look to? Cultures inspired inspired you where you saw that grief has been tended to and is part of the way of being, the part of the thread that brings people together as a practice. What, what did you discover? There were a few key influences for the book. My own ancestors, I'm always, yeah, very inspired by and really guide a lot of what I do. Um, so I'm very much of the African diaspora. I have Yoruba ancestry, um, but also Guyanese, so African and Caribbean, um, and Celtic on my dad's side. So I was inspired by what I know of those pre-colonial rituals, um, many of which do hold space for grief. But the two main people who I feel like the books, uh, who's, the book really stands on their shoulders um, is Maladoma Somme and Sabonfu Somme, who are no longer alive, um, but did a lot during their lifetimes to spread uh, Dagara grief practices and philosophy in the West. And so the Dagara people are indigenous to what we now call Burkina Faso in West Africa. And they have a very specific uh, relationship to communal grief tending where 
everyone in the community is expected to tend their grief in the communal ritual once a month because there is a, an understanding in their cosmology that untended grief will actually become harm in the in the society um and so rather than being taboo as it is in the west to grieve publicly and be with that it's actually taboo to avoid your grief in the dagara context and um yeah that had a really big impact on me um and it's something i yeah i agree with although i'm not rooted within the dagara cosmology it really resonates with me um in my own life experience and just witnessing how things unfold in the world with cycles of violence and harm when they're not really addressed at the root um i think we we can witness that unfolding in the world uh, in this moment and as many other examples so i i do sort of subscribe to this idea that we um we need to kind of tend to this emotional dirty laundry in a sense regularly enough to have the presence to kind of to hold the container of the the world and the relational dynamics that we're trying to center I was actually struck by that this summer when we had that conversation by the, the little river there and you had mentioned actually that very concept or idea or way of, of of being, which is if I don't tend to my grief, it turns to harm. And I was quite struck by that as you said that and immediately it resonated for me as well, how we externalize that pain. So I, I'm wondering if you'd be, and I'm sure you describe it in your book, but I'm wondering if you could describe how do we how do we tend pain? I know how I tend mine is through embodiment practice, is through uh, a sense of mutuality holding with, but I'd really love to hear the, the practices that you found in, in these, this culture, this culture that is part of your ancestry. Yeah. How do we tend, like how do we as a group come together to tend to pain? There's so many different expressions of it that we've seen, um, but what was unique to, to this uh, group? In the, the book, I'm I'm not reproducing Dagara grief rituals. Um, I have experienced mm -hmm. a Dagara grief ritual with Sabonfu while she was alive, which was a really powerful experience. But I would say the, the grief rituals in the book are, yeah, inspired by sort of Celtic practices as well as Yoruba sort of dance-based practices. They don't sit within a specific traditional lineage a lot of the time. So I'm trying to think about how we can re-engage with ritual without it having to be necessarily in a specific cultural tradition because yeah I think there are nuances and dynamics to be mindful of with that so I'm yeah I'm trying to dance within that um, but for me tending to pain can look many different ways sometimes I feel like I just need something that's a bit of a pressure release valve initially like if I notice something is really overcoming my system and I might not have a lot of time before I have to be present in a certain situation, um, it might be that tremoring um, is something I might go to to try and dissipate the initial kind of wave um, that's coming. It might be that I turn to a pillow screaming practice to just try and release some of the, the kind of stuff that's more on top so I'm trying to, I guess, get clear for myself in the moment, you know, do I have time to really feel into this and go into this in the level that's required? Or is this just a kind of pressure relief moment that's needed? Um, but when I do have more time, 
I like to engage in in some of the rituals that are really outlined in the book. So starting by by grounding, doing an embodiment practice, um, and then yeah, trying to get clear and intentional about what it is I'm trying to grieve, what it is that's causing me pain, and just allowing myself to notice where it sits in my body, what in my body wants to respond, and usually allow noises, movement, memories, sensations to kind of come up that allow me to start almost composting and breaking down, you know, what are the nutrients I can take from this? Like, what is this teaching me? And what's the waste I need to discard? And really trying to almost discard that waste um, through embodiment, whether it is the moaning, stuff that's kind of being sighed out, whether it's tears, um, whether it's more shaking, but sort of being in that that kind of composting process um, and then moving towards some kind of integration at the end um, as I close. So whether that's being in meditation, journaling, um, but yeah, just trying to kind of go through almost a cyclical process to to understand like what's really going on here because for me at least there tend to be a lot of layers there might be the initial reactivity but when I sink deeper into it um, it's often connecting to maybe ancestral uh, dynamics or intergenerational harms that haven't really been addressed that are ongoing or things that have happened in childhood or things that I don't feel like I have control over Um, and so I think part of it for me is also just cultivating the capacity in my body, mind to be with the sensations that come with actually feeling that. <laughs> and sometimes I only have capacity to, to be with that for 20 minutes and that's fine. And there might be other days where I can be with that for an hour. So yeah, I almost feel that there's a need in myself and maybe for those of us who are socialized in the West to sort of titrate and regrow that capacity to be with the sensations that can allow us to show up um, to our pain because we're so used to numbing and, and disconnecting from it. I think it's it's understandable that we we might have to regrow the muscle almost to to hold that and to yeah to be able to to face it without being overwhelmed because we also don't want to dissociate right just be like I can just be with it but really we're not there so I guess trying to find that that balance of of noticing okay I'm with it I'm with it oh I'm going somewhere else cool let me let me pause let me come back to my body or take a break but just really um I guess practicing how to be in relationship to pain because it wasn't something I I grew up having examples of how to do well (laughs) yeah I really resonate with everything that you just said I was never taught how to feel grief in my experiences of going to funerals and things like that I think that was about the only place that I was ever felt that I had permission to grieve. And back then I didn't even really understand it in that lens. It was just an event that you go to where sometimes people cry, but I didn't understand the value of sharing that grief with other people and being witnessed in that space by others. But yeah, I really, I love, I love what you're talking about and all the, the, your description of the moaning and the finding the ways to move and digest and compost these energies through our body. Like it really reminds me quite viscerally of, of ayahuasca ceremonies and doing medicine work and, and how often, yeah, what I encounter there is, is that kind of uncomposted material that's still living in my body probably haven't attended to very much. And that is being brought to my attention. (laughs) Um, And I, yeah, I wonder what in your book and in, in your work, 
how are you viewing the relationship of this tending grief work to the psychedelic renaissance and medicine work more broadly yeah thank you for this question i um i notice having sort of been involved in the space um since around 2017 or so yeah with the medical model which i agree is seemingly uh, uh, a useful container to get this stuff into the mainstream I'm not denying that although i may have my my criticisms um i've noticed more and more that there is this sense of psychedelic medicines being something that can fix right and take away ailments like a magic bullet there's more and more of this rhetoric and i'm fascinated with how it's showing up in tv and media more and more the types of tropes that are being um <laughs> pandied about like i think i was watching an episode of something recently where they they do an eye they have an ayahuasca ceremony it's so inaccurate <laughs> as to the kind of preparation <laughs> the time it takes all the things so inaccurate but I found it interesting that one of the characters says it's like 10 years of therapy in one night. And so I'm really curious about all of these tropes and all of these messages that are coming into the mainstream. But what I'm fascinated by is how this narrative very much um, reinforces the taboo of grief in the West and reinforces this idea that we have to just be happy and productive and that our measure of health and well-being is if we can be workers who are you know, able to produce and be useful in this very particular framework. And I'm a little bit concerned that, yeah, if we if we don't think about the role that grief plays <laughs> and the, the grief that people have and that brings a lot of people to do medicine work, that they may find themselves a bit disappointed um, and they may not actually get the to be really, um, I don't know, blunt about it, or I don't know the other language I would use, I might not get the the results they want because I don't think there's enough nuance in the mainstreaming that's taking place to speak about the work that actually needs to go into creating change or transformation in tandem with working with plant medicines or psychedelics. Um, and to me, for my own experience with, with working with plant medicines, grief work has been such a huge component <laughs> of what I've been doing, you know, and what I've been working with and what's been supported by the medicines. Um, but this narrative that you're just going to, you know, go into a ceremony and take this medicine and boom, all your issues are gone. Your addiction is gone, you know, and not speak about what are the root causes of this where is the grief in your body what might you have to be mapping out and tracking in your environment to support you to move through the changes that are inevitably going to come how can you have practices to help you continue titrating and composting the stuff that is going to continue coming up after your ceremony so that you can move towards behavior change and i don't think these things are really being talked about so i sort of see the psychedelic therapy space right now just as a you know, microcosm of the macro context in the West in which we're still reinforcing this idea that grief is taboo. We are not making space for emotions that interrupt productivity. And in a way, I think psychedelic medicines are more and more being positioned as a quick fix rather than um, entities or allies in deeper transformation that requires us 
to do the work. I think that includes grief, tending. The other thing I'm seeing happening and I'm some of the clients that I've been working with, um, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, uh, Cami, is uh, I also feel that psychedelics are being used too quickly to tend to grief. Um, so sometimes what I'm seeing is, you know, I've been working with a few clients who have tragically lost children, either to suicide or overdoses. And uh, these parents end up in these grief circles down in countries where it's okay just to set up a retreat. And all of a sudden, all these shocked humans, these shocked parents are thrown into high doses of psilocybin and they ha- they're still in shock. And now they're thrown into five milligrams of psilocybin and everyone's wailing together. They don't know each other. They've just arrived in a foreign country. They're told that this psychedelic is going to break th- something through for them or that they're thrown into, they're asked to grieve before they've even tended shock. We haven't even dealt with shock in the system and now they're absolutely overwhelmed. And then they're told you're not going to be able to process this current pain until you've dealt with your childhood trauma. So there, it's already this like overwhelming situation where I'm still in shock of losing my child and now I'm flooded with a psychedelic and now I'm in torment. Like some of these people are in absolute torment and that, and I have to deal with my childhood trauma. And it's just like, everything's getting jammed together. Exactly. I see you shaking your head. Thank you. Because sometimes like this is one of the things that I'm thinking about is we have so much trauma built up. Like sometimes we can't go back to the childhood trauma yet until we've dealt with some of the current traumas. There's been such this movement in some methodologies is that get to the core trauma, but we have to stabilize the body and resource the body and build relational trust before we can actually grieve together or, or even trust that someone can have embodied empathy with me, trust that you can actually feel this with me. But first we have to stabilize the shock in the body before we can even go there. So, you know, as I, yes, I totally agree. There's this one side that says, here's psychedelics to help you with your, your, your anxiety and depression. But these other places that are going so quickly without understanding the sequencing of healing. So I kind of wonder what your thoughts are on that. No, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. And it kind of ooh, it makes me feel a bit like that, to be honest. Like, ooh. And what was popping up into my mind as you were talking about this is, is the way that even for those of us who don't identify as Christian, the way that original sin to me intersects a lot with the way people are approaching trauma healing or trauma recovery in this moment, in the sense that, oh, this thing is in me and I need to get it out as quickly as possible. I just need to become pure again. I need to get it out. (laughs) And it's understandable. But I don't think it's a particularly, to me, it doesn't feel like a very juicy and delicious way of trying to navigate that stuff. I really appreciate this podcast called The Emerald. There's one episode talking about trauma and the moment we're in where it's, you know, becoming very mainstream. And I think there are great things about that and some shadow things about that. But one of the beautiful things named in that episode was that we are a map of all of the trauma and all of the beautiful experiences that we've ever had like we you know are this kind of collage of things and it's not easy to just separate out one piece from who we have grown into based on all of these factors so yes I think there is a place for trauma recovery and moving towards full aliveness and allowing us to change behaviors that may have 
you know come as a revival as a result of survival strategies you know all of that i'm here for but i agree with you that resourcing and feeling a sense of safety in the body um needs to needs to be prioritized and i don't think that's going to come from just working with medicines if anything if you're burnt out or in shock as you're saying doing plant medicine work i think may exacerbate <laughs> the issues right because it can have an activating effect on the nervous system um and again that's something that's not being spoken about a lot in the space and this desire to you know after having this horrific loss you know this deep deep loss of losing a child which i i don't understand what that's like you know from uh that perspective of a child that's you know born and you've been raising yeah i i think in a way i don't want to judge these people but my sense is that it again is coming from this culture of i need to be a productive worker i don't have time to deal with this i don't know how to deal with this i just need to get rid of these feelings what can help me get rid of this oh plant medicine they're going to solve it for me so i think it's the same logic of bypassing because we don't have templates currently of how to be with how to journey with or steward the grief and almost midwife it you know and that, that can take years sometimes and it's a whole journey and unfolding and I, and I don't think we have many narratives or, or spaces again to kind of model what that can look like and normalize that and normalize the impact it might have on our ability to stay up late or work at our optimum pace or whatever it may be but just allowing a space for the grieving being for the grieving body mind um we don't we don't have that permission and so i think psychedelics are becoming a kind of way that people are trying to bypass or shortcut through stuff that actually may just require time like a lot of time to be with and allow the unfolding to come so there can move be a movement towards meaning of like what do i care about what what am i being shown that now is the orientation of my life after I've been changed by this experience. So you're still gonna have to do that even if you do the plant medicine. It's just there's all these other layers, like you're saying, of complexity that come up when people try to rush it. But I feel bad for folks who aren't getting this, who aren't getting the information and are just being told this is gonna solve all your problems like a panacea. It's, it's not the case. It's uh, an interesting thing too. I was thinking um, a little bit through the NARM training, the neuroaffective relational model that I found intriguing is they, they talk about primary emotions and default emotions. And there, there's such a distinction. I know that I, I, I grew up in a, a, gr a family stuck in grief, you know, Hungarians, refugees, hundreds of years of occupation. You know, essentially my family arrived in Canada on the heels of a huge loss of, of uh, agency. A, a, a revolution was crushed. This, they had four, you know, 13 days of freedom and then everything was crushed and then it was a lockdown against the Soviet occupation. But so I kind of feel like I was born into grief, this, this heaviness that kind of always permeated. We had laughter kind of sliced through every so often, but there was this kind of heaviness that got stuck. And I was starting to think about how to, how do we differentiate between a grief that is a default and a sadness that is a default crying out to be cared for and then the freshness of a true grieving, because I can see it sometimes in my clients that I work with where they've gone off to grief circles and then it becomes a default emotion because they think, oh, I'm supposed to be grieving, so I'm going to keep grieving. And there's this kind of, and, and, and so there's this differentiation between this grieving that I'm exploring and it's going to take as long as, gonna, as, as it's going to take 
but also that default that this is where I go always and it doesn't feel fresh. It doesn't feel like the phenomena that's rising right now. It feels like a dysregulation. So I'm really, in my work, I'm really trying to differentiate between a grief that's actually hit something so true down in the roots and it's transformative. Like I can feel it's transformative energy. Um, if you can call grief fresh, even if it's so ancient. But do you know what I mean? Is that kind of difference between people that default to grief? Because I did. I defaulted there and it kind of felt like a just this weight that I carried rather than something that was alive, finding its expression uh, in the moment of what is this truly here? How does it shift and change the, the nuance, the nuance of grief? So um, I'm kind of wondering what your take on that is on the ways that we can get stuck in a process that we think this is what I'm supposed to be doing to something that it's alive and shifting and changing. Because I've had to kind of work with clients going, okay, whoa, th this feels now like a, a cycle I'm stuck in because this is what I'm supposed to be doing rather than what's actually here together right now in the moment. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And I, I resonate with what you're saying. There's a an activist and, and writer called Malika uh, Devich Cyril who talks about grief not being the opposite of joy. Grief is the opposite of indifference. And I really appreciate that, yeah, that, that, mm, that thread because I do think that in my own experience, my capacity to feel sorrow intentionally, not in that kind of, default way you're, you're talking about because I resonate with that too but the ability to intentionally go into sorrow seems to be mirroring my capacity to feel joy and pleasure and expansiveness so I do see the relationship there but there's also this piece around grief leading and pointing towards what we really care about and what matters and the ability to also be in relationship to that and I think that's an important component my sense having grown up in a family context that you know, where there was a lot of joy and there was a lot of laughter, but I think there was also a lot of unprocessed grief. You know, the various violences that have come with colonization, displacement and all of that. I think there there was also this default to an extent because there hadn't ever really been a process to engage with that. It was something where, okay, that happened, now we're moving on. And yet it's always kind of on your back. I think I'm curious about what, processes we could use whether it's being in conversation um, rituals whatever it may be to start to kind of unpick these intergenerational dynamics that often have kind of been tried to be shoved in a corner and then actually become very pervasive and start to be maybe mistaken for culture you know the certain behavior traits that then are seen as this is just how we are as opposed to maybe this is how we are in response to this thing we've never really allowed ourselves to acknowledge has been so painful um, and I do think there can be kind of repeated behavior patterns and relational dynamics from that when it's when it's not addressed but yeah I see that you know the acute grief and shock of, of losing a loved one um, is a different is a different energy or dynamic to the kind of stag stagnation is what it reminds me of the stagnation that kind of becomes normalized sometimes when there's this this heaviness of untended uh, grief that, yeah, I don't think anyone is trying to be malicious and not dealing with, but just many people in assimilating or moving have actually lost contact with the practices that they would have used to kind of regulate with the seasons and compost things and 
you know, I think that's part of the the challenge as a lot of this has been also combined with assimilation and losing access to the tools that we would have used in our communities as well. So yeah, I, I suppose I don't have anything really to to add differently, but just that I, I resonate with what you're saying there and I, I, I'm interested in, yeah, feeling into that more. I um I also really resonate with what you're saying, Miss Truth, and I I always really admire the 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 pace that you bring to these conversations and to this work, slowing things right down. Cammy, you just reminded me of a um a book. Have you have you read Grief and Praise? By I think it's Martin Prichell. Yeah, which has a similar idea to what you mentioned about. Yeah, the uh, grief is is the opposite of indifference. Just hearing you talk, it yeah, it made me. I was feeling into this yeah, this idea that you know that grief and praise are connected. That in every moment of grief, there is a past moment of praise that that is really a requisite for there to be grief. Now, we had to at some point have placed great value on something. We had to praise it to equal measure with the grief. And at the same time, for everything that we currently praise, there carries with it a future moment of grief that will come. Um, and there's this sort of like sense in which we have a choice, you know, a choice to truly open our hearts to life, to people, to places, to ourselves. But to the extent that we open our hearts to that love, to the extent that we praise something, is to the extent that we must also grieve it, grieve it, and that's a that takes courage, I guess, to you know to love something because of that. Yes, I really I found that book very influential, and it's it's a reference for sure in in my book as well, and the research I've been doing on grief. I think there's something coming up for me around behavior change because there's also this element around grief work and social movements I'm really curious about and that I I have this intuition that it would be very helpful for social movements but the experiments will have to continue before I can really say in a more definitive way what I, what I notice from that but I, I think there needs to be a differentiation between um, the grieving process and the behavior change that can come after a grief process. I think, you know, we can shed all the tears that we want for injustice in the world, but whether or not we allow that injustice and our connection to it to then help us pivot and be responsive to that is another thing. Um, and I do think that's uh, where somatics can be really impactful is is allowing that um, desired behavior change to really become embodied in daily practice and support the relational support the relationships that we're entangled with so i'm i'm hoping that when people read the book and um hopefully engage in some of these practices that there will be that that pathway towards behavior change that can open up through having more somatic practice and cultivating more capacity to be with sensation in general but yeah i i i'm gonna be interested to see what emerges and, and if and if people are able to kind of make that connection with ease we'll see I suppose <laughs> it's, it's interesting something that uh, something that popped into my head as you were just talking then Cami is um this idea that I came across recently whenever people are working 
um, towards, you know, change, cultural change, um, working in difficult environments, working with vulnerable families or vulnerable people um, that, you know, that there's this thing called compassion fatigue that we can experience. And I, I recently discovered that that's probably not the right word for it. And that actually um, what some researchers are starting to say is that we should call it empathy fatigue. And the, the thing that's fatiguing us is perpetually empathizing with the pain and suffering of others without also connecting with the motivation and the desire for change, with the possibility and the hope for change, which is what compassion seems to hold um, at the same time, is this, this element of, um, yeah, a hope and a desire and a motivation for something to be different, something to be better, for change to be made. And so actually, in a paradoxical kind of way, a true engagement with compassion is the remedy to empathy fatigue. Um, and I just wondered if that, does that resonate with what, what you're talking about? Is that connected in any way? Yeah, that does resonate. That does resonate. I think when I hear you speaking about compassion, it's something I'm actively trying to cultivate at the moment and to be with complexity and not feel that compassion or empathy is like a slight, like a pizza with limited slices. You know, there can be enough, there can be enough for everyone. I suppose the moment that we're in, I, I'm always curious about the words that we use and the different meanings those words have for different people. Like even in the way that yoga has now, you know, become kind of a different thing in the Western context. And I, I love practicing yoga. I've been practicing for over half my life, but there are some dynamics that feel a bit weird sometimes. And one of those is, I suppose, the kind of yoga light spirituality that um, has become normalized. So like cultivate compassion, focus on your own regulation because you can't change anything in the world. So you may as well just try and make sure you can feel your own happiness and feel compassion for other beings. And I notice this is like a very dominant thread within that space and maybe in a lot of other spaces that are more spiritual or esoteric, the sense that we can only just focus on ourselves as individuals and too much engagement with the material realm is somehow not not possible or going into shadow or negativity. So I, I don't subscribe to that, but it makes me think, I, you know, I would love it if everyone's version of compassion could be what you're talking about, could be a really heart-centered meeting and feeling with that then inspires reflection around what is my role or relationship to this and how could I pivot to be in service of the love and the connectedness I'm feeling, you know, with this, with this group, with this issue in this situation that can allow me to, to just be in relationship in a different way. So I suppose to me, I notice there's still uh, what I hope will be an even deeper merging of the spiritual and the esoteric with the practical and kind of mundane dynamics of material existence and and the ways that yeah I think we we still could go a lot further in connecting our feelings of care and compassion with action with loving action and not um, holding ourselves to standards that are unattainable but just seeing that those two things go together as opposed to okay I'm going to feel a thing and then you know leave it over there it's like yeah what does it look like to to allow our emotions to also be inspiring action and and shifts in how we move through our lives and in the day-to-day. -day. I love what you said, all of what you said. It's why I know I 
love having dialogue with you, Cami, and you, you inspired like a 50 thoughts and I'm going to see if I can uh, synthesize them. I, I've been thinking a lot and, and Dr. T, you brought it up as well. So I'm going to kind of <laughs> bring my octopus. I, I call myself an octopus and I try to bring it back to center, but I, I've been really in a big study around embodied empathy. Like, what does that mean? And I think it's, I'm going to stick my neck out here you know, we've got this phrase loving kindness that comes from Buddhist meditation. And I was introduced to it. In fact, I've got a tattoo that says loving kindness. And however, I think that now in the world now, to say loving kindness is just like how we're using the word stress or trauma or all these things that we adopt and we just start saying it. But for me, embodied empathy is, it blew my mind like to really realize what it requires like the somatic practice that it requires on a daily basis to be with my cells, to be with my cells that are carrying 400, 500 years of information. I use less the word compassion and I use more of the words embodied empathy because for me, it's a, a profound somatic practice that requires daily that I go there to actually wake up and go, oh my God, here's the news on Israel and Gaza again. And Ukraine and and earthquakes and fires. So for me, it's a daily grieving process. Every day I wake up and there's there's grief in something that I hear and I don't want to, sh- I actually had this moment here in the back of my body where I said, I don't want to shut this down. I want a way that it comes through me and moves through me kind of like a river. And so I was thinking to myself, compassion for me is that sense that understanding that someone is suffering And people behave the way they do because of what's happened to them. But embodied empathy for me is this sense of really getting you, getting you on the inside of how has your whole body become what it is because of what you've been through and your ancestors have been through. And then, you know, I was asking in in my practicum with Sharon Stanley, I said, Sharon, what is it that we're actually healing here? And she says, disembodiment. And then I just went, whoa, oh my God, this is actually what we're healing here is disembodiment because in disembodiment, we can't feel what's happening to another person and we can't feel what's happening to ourselves. And then I went down this, this real, this rabbit hole of thinking, oh my God, what a profound grief I have when I really sit with it is the inequality is that human beings are not valued, are not an equal value. Like that, that this is what colonialism and patriarchy has done is that we value some people over others and that I think that we're collectively grieving that without knowing it and, and, and generates this intense drive and strive to be better all the time. And my God, I realize I'm just so sad about this right now when I think about it. It's like I saw, I grew up with that. I grew up with that one child being favored over the other or one culture favored over the other or some, you know, it's profoundly destabilizing for a world where people are not valued equally for their contributions. So I just, I just realized as I was talking it through how sad <laughs> and grieving I feel about that to, to wake up in such a uh, disparity in the world. Yeah. I don't know. That was just a lot of octopusing there, but those are all kind of the things that came as the two of you were talking. And I, and quite honestly, I'm not, I'm like deliberately not feeling all of the things every day all the time i'm making space to to drop in and feel but then a lot of the time i'm limiting or softening or 
you know, shielding to an extent because I think that's the challenge uh, with the economic system we have. That, you know, we don't have a choice about having to make money to survive. And currently in the economic system, there's not a lot of space for these emotions. So I, I totally understand and empathize with why people are just trying to numb. And I think things are getting to a level where people are not able to do that anymore. And that in itself is distressing people. <laughs> <laughs> because they've maybe been able to push things out and now you know everything's cracking and falling on them and they're like oh my god what do I do with this um so yeah I feel like there's something in as you're saying like learning to to drop into it and feel it and then maybe pull back to be like okay I need to tend to this or tend to that but to kind of be in the back and forth at least is what I'm trying to to do of sort of noticing okay, when can I make intentional time to really drop into this and to feel, and when do I have to, yeah, be in the functional, slightly more robotic capitalist work mode um, to pay bills and to, to do the things. And I hope more and more, if we're able to be in that back and forth and that oscillation, we can start to create work environments, community spaces, contexts where we actually can bring more of all of what we're holding um, and notice the need for that. But I suppose until we we start the sensing into and, and, and feeling the longing and desire to do that with people, then maybe there won't be the kind of advocacy to start, you know, thinking, oh, well, if I can't do this at work and I can't do this in my place of worship and I can't do this with my friends, like, where am I meant to do this? <laughs> maybe I need to change something up, you know, and starting to really create um, those containers so we can shift the culture um but yeah i i feel you i mean if i didn't have to to engage in this way in the work machine i mean i could easily be crying all day about all the things because there's just so much and i really believe that things could be so much more beautiful you know we have so much capacity and so much power as a collective it doesn't have to be like this and I really hope we can we can figure it out to to make things more beautiful in the in the decades to come. Yeah, you know, just as you were saying that, I was realizing all those moments that I've been with clients, both in medicine and out of medicine, where the most human, the most human I've seen clients is both in transformational grief and laughter. Those two places where I just see the most human vibrating soul is right there. And it's where I have the place I most love to be with humans. Those, those two places. Dr. T, we're just at 54 minutes. I knew we'd be going up to an hour and we could make this three hours, but um, is there anything else, Dr. T, that you want to get in before we close with Cami? Only that I really resonate with what you just said. It's such a privilege and such a beautiful thing to be able to share and witness other people in those spaces in those moments of grief or or laughter <laughs> cam any closing comments anything that you'd like to just kind of leave us with before i encourage clients to get your book and i'll repeat the title in a moment anything you want to just close with there we're kind of where you're at right now <laughs> how about right now I mean, I just want to thank both of you for having me on to have this conversation. And I hope that being with the pain and tending to our grief can genuinely lead us to beautiful ways of living. And 
feeling in our full aliveness as much as we have capacity for and really moving towards what we deeply long for with each other and for the generations to come. Um, yeah, it's definitely an exciting time to be alive in the in the midst of the, the depths of it. Sometimes I have to laugh. I'm like, well, life is definitely interesting <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's that's my closing thought. And I'm just going to bring us back to that beautiful quote from Khalil Gibran's poem. And could you keep your heart in wonder that the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And just wanting to remind our listeners uh, the name of the book that is coming out, Cammie Barton's book, Tending Grief embodied rituals for holding our sorrow and growing cultures of care in community published by North Atlantic books. It's coming out in April, 2024, and it's available for pre-order. Thank you. Thank you. Cami, Dr. T. Thank you. Adios. That concludes this episode. We hope you found it meaningful and integrative. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at info at punktherapy.com. And remember to punk your inner wisdom. <laughs>